don't have to be extraordinary just giving those who never heard your cries you shall rise Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. 
I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa, Razan Shan of the Sawa. UN condemns violent crackdown on protesters in Sudan's capital, Khartoum. And US President Donald Trump begins his controversial state visit to the UK. In economics news, IMF urges South Africa to speed up reforms to boost growth. And in sports news, Mafana Mafana coach vows to make South Africa proud at the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Sudan's military rulers have decided to cancel what they had previously agreed with protesters about the country's transition and called for elections within nine months. This after the military forcefully broke up weeks-long sit-ins outside Khartoum's army headquarters, leaving more than 30 civilians dead. Thousands of people remained camped outside the military headquarters, calling for the generals to cede power before security forces used force to break up the sit-in. The move drew sharp international criticism with both the United States and the United Nations condemning the breaking up of the sit-in. Sudan's army ruler, General Abdel Fattah al-Buhan, was speaking during a televised address. The political powers which are negotiating with the military council must bear responsibility for their attempt to sideline other political powers and military power and attempting to rule Sudan on their own, to create another totalitarian regime where one opinion is forced, missing agreement, a national mandate and public support, placing the security of Sudan in real danger. Meanwhile, the African Union has called for an immediate and transparent investigation into the violence in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. AU spokesperson Eba Kalondo says the bloc condemns the deadly violence. The African Union obviously strongly condemns the violence that erupted, led to the reported deaths and civilian injuries. The African Union Commission also, in this regard, calls for an immediate and transparent investigation to ensure that those responsible are held accountable. Furthermore, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Fakim Mohamed, calls on the Transitional Military Council to protect the civilians from further harm. A shootout between suspected Al-Shabaab militants and Kenyan security forces near the northeastern town of Mendera has reportedly left two people dead. The clash happened overnight in the village of Finu, close to the border with Somalia. Kenyan police say one police reservist died and one militant was killed in the fighting. Several attacks by Somalia-based militants Al-Shabaab have occurred in Mendera town and the areas close by. In April, two Cuban doctors were kidnapped from the town and are believed to be in Somalia. Around 800 women and children have started leaving a camp in northern Syria that has housed the families of ISIS. They were among tens of thousands of displaced people who were taken into the camp as ISIS was defeated. The BBC's Alan Johnston reports. At least 17 buses have left the Al-Hol camp. Those on board were Syrian women and their children who are returning to nearby hometowns. Camp officials said some had been influenced by IS's extreme ideology and that they'd be monitored and reintegrated into their communities. Some remain deeply radicalized and loyal to IS 
and their home countries have been very reluctant to take them back. And finally, the post-Ramadan prayers and celebration by Muslims known as Eid is taking place across most parts of Africa and the world. Mali became the first country to observe Eid after the new moon was sighted in a locality. The government subsequently declared the day a national holiday for the purpose. As at sunset, Uganda, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sierra Leone, the Republic of Congo and Egypt were among the African countries that announced the 4th of June as Eid Day. South Africa is amongst the countries which will be celebrating the day on Wednesday. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The United Nations Security General and the High Commissioner for Human Rights has strongly condemned the violence and reports of excessive force and the use of live ammunition by security forces against protesters in Khartoum, Sudan. The UN's condemnation comes after the country's security apparatus opened fire on pro-democracy protesters camped outside the army headquarters, reportedly killed at least 13 people. The military and the umbrella body representing the protesters had been negotiating for weeks over who should lead the country in a civilian-led transitional authority following the ouster of former President Omar al-Bashir in April. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Scenes of chaos in what the main protest group has called a massacre. As security forces stormed the main protest camp, the army defended its actions as targeting criminals and unruly groups. But this has prompted words of condemnation from the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres through his spokesperson, Stepan Dujeric. The Secretary General strongly condemns the violence and reports of the excessive force used by security personnel on civilians that have resulted in the deaths and injury of many. He condemns the use of force to disperse the protesters at the sit-in site, and he is alarmed by reports that security forces have opened fire inside medical facilities. The Secretary General reminds the Transitional Military Council of its responsibility for the safety and security of the citizens of Sudan. He urges all parties to act with the utmost restraint. This includes responsibility for upholding the human rights of all citizens, including the right of freedom of assembly and of expression. The High Commissioner Michelle Bachelet also weighed in deploring the use of live ammunition while urging the authorities to make a concerted effort towards transition to civilian rule. Some UN Security Council members also weighed in, like Russian Ambassador and Deputy Permanent Representative Dmitry Polyansky. Very much concerned as everybody who want a peaceful solution, peaceful development in, in Sudan. As I told once, we, we remain friends of Sudan and we want stability in this country which is very important for the whole region. 
and we want a Sudan-driven solution, first and foremost. It includes all parts of the society. While the United Nations has also called for an independent investigation into developments on the ground and for those responsible to be brought to justice, South Africa's envoy Jerry Machila expressed hope that the AU Peace and Security Council's deadline for a return to a civilian-led transitional authority would be respected. We did support the PSC, by the way, because they are nearer, they are engaged in the situation, and they've got the interest of not only Sudan, but the whole, whole, whole of Africa. And we still hope that the parties should really work extra overtime to the deadline. Uncertainty will create more problems in the Sudan. So we need now to be certain. Everyone must be reassured of the next step, the process going forward. So we hope that the military council, the umbrella of the protesters, can come back and at least hit the PSC uh, uh, um, urge that they should find a solution to this. For now, the UN Security Council is deferring to the AU's Peace and Security Council that initially gave the military 15 days to step aside and hand over power to a civilian-led transitional authority. That deadline was later extended on April 30th to 60 days, with the new deadline at the end of June. In the absence of that transition... The AU Peace and Security Council has expressed its readiness to take further appropriate measures by instituting a full range of sanctions against those who compromise the search for a solution to the crisis in Sudan. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. On the night of June 3, 1989, the Chinese government sent tanks and soldiers into Beijing's Tiananmen Square to crush a peaceful pro-democracy student protest. Hundreds... Perhaps thousands were killed. No full official figure has ever been published as 30 years on, the events of that night remain shrouded in a blanket of censorship. But as John Sudworth reports, despite the efforts of the authorities to dismiss the protests as a disturbance, their violent suppression continues to cast a long shadow over the political landscape today. It was the night that the Chinese army turned its guns on the Chinese people. Hundreds, possibly thousands, of peaceful protesters calling for freedom and democratic reform were killed. Thirty years on, in a tiny two-room apartment in Beijing, Pastor Xu Yonghai is leading his congregation in prayer. He had joined the protesters in Tiananmen Square back then, but he was not just a Christian, he was a trained doctor too. From the west, the sound of gunshots came. People were shot down. I went to Yodin Hospital and stitched wounds from midnight to 5 a.m. One young kid had a big hole in the arm. The other big hole in the neck. I went home that day with blood all over my hands. His church draws the dispossessed and marginalized, some of those who've lost land or livelihoods in the wake of China's massive, often corrupt, 30-year rush for development. Mr. Xu, as a result of his activism, has lost his doctor's license.
days, the portrait of Chairman Mao smiles down on the honour guard at the daily flag-raising ceremony. It serves as a constant reminder that this giant square has been reclaimed as the symbolic centre of Communist Party power. My name is Bao Tong. I am a counter-revolutionary. 82-year-old Bao Tong is a former senior official who had a ringside view of the political turmoil in 1989. Just before the hardliners sent in the tanks, he was arrested, seen as one of those too sympathetic to the protesters, and he spent seven years in solitary confinement. What disappoints me is that for the past 30 years, China's leaders have been willing to stand alongside the inhumane crime of June the 4th. They treat it as a valuable lesson, as a magic trick behind the rise of the nation. The official narrative that the killings helped to keep chaos and revolution at bay is a nonsense, he says. If the protesters had been listened to, China's development may have followed a very different path. I see a China without a great firewall, without a privileged class, unfortunately with fewer billionaires, but a place in which the poor migrant workers could live freely without being driven out of the cities. I see a China that doesn't need to steal foreign technology. After our interview, Mr. Bao, who is constantly followed and monitored, was warned not to accept further interviews. If anything, the censorship is growing more intense. Songs that mention the events of 1989 are banned, and people who try to commemorate what happened are jailed. Tiananmen is more than just history; it overshadows everything. As the moment the Communist Party decided to hold on to power at all costs. U.S. President Donald Trump has begun a controversial state visit to the United Kingdom on Monday. After spending the day with the Queen and the royal family, the president attended a state banquet at Buckingham Palace. Mass protests are planned today when Trump holds talks with Theresa May at Downing Street, and the president has already caused controversy by calling the London mayor a stone-cold loser. But on Twitter, Trump said the trip was going well and hinted at. A possible trade deal with the UK once it gets rid of its shackles. Holly Hudson has more from London. Well, this is the first day of the president's three-day visit, and already it's lived up to expectations in terms of controversy. After arriving on Air Force One, the president was welcomed by the Queen and other royals at Buckingham Palace. To all the pomp and ceremony a state visit entails, including two gun salutes, and he and his wife Melania have carried out a number of activities with the royals, including tea with Prince Charles, and of course the lavish state banquet. 
But around all the pageantry, the president managed to fit in a series of provocative tweets, reigniting his feud with London Mayor Sadiq Khan, calling him a stone-cold loser and saying he should focus on London crime, not the president himself. Now, that's angered many MPs, including the opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn, who himself is boycotting the banquet tonight. He declined his invite. He's urged people to join mass protests against the president, which will take place tomorrow. 250,000 took to the streets last time, and similar numbers are expected to this time as long, as well as, of course, the Trump baby blimp, a 20-foot-high balloon depicting the president as an angry orange baby. That will take to the skies tomorrow when the president holds talks with Theresa May at Downing Street. Now, of course, the prime minister is stepping down in two days' time, and the president himself has waded into the leadership debate backing front-runner Boris Johnson, saying he would be a great prime minister. So it'll be interesting to see how those talks develop in the press conference between Theresa May and Donald Trump tomorrow. The White House and the government saying this is an opportunity to strengthen the special relationship. But this is Donald Trump, so we can expect the unexpected over the next two days. Holly Hudson, London. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The level of influence the Gupta brothers had over former South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has once again been revealed at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry in Parktown, Johannesburg. During his testimony, former editor of the now-defunct TV news channel ANN7, Rajesh Sundaram, highlighted the ease with which things happened to facilitate the launch of the channel. From expedited visa applications to special briefing meetings with then President Zuma. Our reporter Nomalizo Mandel has more. Sundaram told the commission that his visa to come work in South Africa was cleared fairly quickly and that he was not even interviewed by Home Affairs officials. And I thought that it would take a long time for the work permit to be issued to me and I asked uh, Mr. Lakshmi Goel about it. But he told me that you know they had uh, what, what he called a setting uh, with uh, the high office in South Africa and that the, the visa would be done in no time. He asked me to get a yellow fever vaccine, uh, a note from a local police station uh, giving me a security clearance, and a medical certificate from a government doctor saying that I do not have tuberculosis, if I remember correctly. Uh, I was also told that uh, the procedure for the visas for the people going from here would bypass uh, the normal procedure. According to Sindaram, former President Jacob Zuma was actively involved in the running of the TV station. He testified that Duduzani Zuma's involvement in the setting up of the station was minimal, even though he was the director and the shareholder. It was uh, President Zuma who was more actively involved uh, in terms of the meetings that I had were more uh, like uh, a review by shareholders uh, on the status of the project, uh, on the television project, you know. Duduzani's involvement in the, uh, in, the, in the setting up of the station or the running of the uh, business was 
minimal, I would say. You know, there was just one meeting uh, where he had a small appearance and uh, th th there's not much in terms of uh, business that he contributed uh, to that meeting. Uh, confidential information, uh, which I, uh, as somebody who set up many stations uh, across in India, would know, you know, there's some confidential information which you don't really give out so early in the project. That was disclosed to the president. Now, I would have thought as somebody, when I knew, when I did not know that the, of the president's son's involvement in this, I thought it was a little funny that you'd hand out a document which had all uh, the secrets uh, of uh, the project to a public office and leave a, a, a presentation there with all those details with so many people in his office would have access to that and it could clearly have leaked. But they, they, they didn't really seem to care. I mean, they, they trusted him 100%. And it was only later on uh, I, uh, that I realized that it's because uh, he had a, a much bigger interest uh, in the station. Sundaram told the commission that Zuma and the Guptas would often make jokes about the Waterkloof incident and would have hearty laughs about it as well. After the Waterkloof uh, scandal, some ministers and officials seemed reluctant to be seen in public with Atul or on a platform hosted by his newspaper. These ministers and officials were convinced after a nudge from the president, Atul told me. Uh, the bad press and public outcry following the incident did not seem to have made any difference to the relationship between President Zuma and the Gupta brothers. Uh, in the three meetings with President Zuma that I was part of, uh, the two brothers bonded well with the president and joked occasionally about the scandal. It was like nothing had happened. So they, they even made jokes about the scandal, uh, you know, like uh, I remember when the uh, president would say something, he'd say, oh, but then this happened uh, during Waterkloof, you know. I'll not be allowed to get guests now, things like that, you know, which, uh, which the president uh, didn't seem to mind and, and, and they would have a hearty laugh uh, about it as well. So, and also there was a reluctance among many ministers to be seen on the same platform. And they did seem to come later because uh, they were convinced uh, to come for these meetings. Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zonda then questioned Sundaram about direct quotes and lines that he published in his book with quotation marks, which would indicate that these words were exactly what was said at the time. Yet he had no recordings to reference. But why would you want to put in quotations when you attribute a statement to somebody if you don't remember it as word for word? Uh, I mean, you, 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 you are an experienced journalist, you are an editor. Yes. Uh, you know exactly what it means when you put somebody a statement in quotations, in quotation marks. Yes, uh, I agree, you know. <laughs> I agree with you there. And I would also say that, you know, I did this because I, I wanted to, when I was writing a book, uh, it, it was not like writing a news report. So I wanted to put it in a, in, in a narrative style that, that I wanted to put in there. And no, I, but you can't I wrote put in a narrative form by attributing some to somebody words that that person did not uh, utter. Can you? I, I, I agree with that. I agree so why that. did you do it? Uh, because you could make the same points by, without representing that those are the words that were said by that person. Mm -hmm. Sundaram is expected to continue with his testimony today. That report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. BP has agreed to pay around 10 billion US dollars to a businessman involved in a suspicious energy deal. A BBC investigation has discovered the energy giant bought Frank Timmy's stake in a gas field off the coast of Senegal for $250 million in 2017. But documents obtained by the BBC's Panorama program and Africa Eye reveal that BP will also pay his company between 9 and 
and $12 billion in royalties. Both BP and Timis deny any wrongdoing. The BBC's Mayani Jones has more. Romanian businessman Frank Timis has been involved in a series of controversial mining deals in Africa. In 2012, one of his companies was awarded the exploration rights for two large oil and gas concessions off the coast of Senegal, even though it had no track record in the industry. The final go-ahead came from the Senegalese president, Macky Sall. But the deal looks suspicious because Frank Timis had given a top job to the president's brother, Aliou Sall. I asked the former prime minister, Abdul Imbai, what he made of the appointment. Why do you think that Frank Timis wanted to employ Aliou Sall? Very simply because he was the brother of the president, Macky Sall. It's extremely serious because there's an obvious conflict of interest. We've obtained Alusal's contract. It shows he was paid $25,000 a month for five years. That's $1.5 million. The president's brother was also promised shares worth $3 million. But the contract makes it clear there's a condition. Alusal will only get the job if his brother, the president, allows Frank Timis to keep the valuable concessions. We showed the contract to Jeremy Carver, an expert on due diligence and corruption. The monthly payments of $25,000 for a consultancy, a little surprisingly large for somebody that has no previous experience in that industry, the explanation for which seems to be that it's connected with the confirmation by his brother, the president, of the license blocks. Do you think this is a suspicious arrangement? Uh, I do find the payment suspicious. The linkage between the two is unmistakable in my view. In 2016, gas was discovered in the concessions. BP agreed to buy Frank Timis out, even though it knew about the suspicious payments to the president's brother. We've got a copy of the royalties agreement. It reveals that over the next 40 years, BP will pay one of Frank Timis's companies between $9 and $12 billion. Daniel Balint-Curty from Global Witness says BP should never have got involved. It's absolutely indefensible that a company like BP should be rewarding somebody like Frank Timmis, particularly when BP really cannot guarantee that there wasn't bribery involved in the obtention of these blocks in the first place. BP says it conducted extensive due diligence and it rejects any implication that it acted improperly. But Chief Executive Bob Dudley has refused to answer our questions, so I caught up with him as he arrived at work. Mr. Dudley, I work for BBC Panorama, and we want to know why BP is paying Frank Timmis $10 billion. You knew that he was paying the president of Senegal's brother, so why go ahead with the deal, sir? So is Frank Timmis someone that BP should be doing business with? Mr. Dudley, why won't you answer our questions? Frank Timmis and Al Yusal strenuously deny any corruption. Their lawyers say the payments to Mr. Sal were in line with similar jobs, and he never received the shares. They say he was employed for his expertise and not because he happened to be the president of Senegal's brother. Zimbabwean teachers have downed tools owing to failure by the government to adjust their wages in line with the inflation rate of 76% by April this year. The Amalgamated Rural Teachers Association of Zimbabwe says the three-day strike that started on Monday has been a success so far. In a statement, the association said that 62% of teachers did not report for work as they demand salaries to be paid in U.S. dollars. Simon Machema reports from Harare.
It is not a secret anymore. Zimbabwe's economy is crippled and crawling on its knees. Any major economic challenge one may think of is or has affected the country and citizens are now desperate. One sector that has been heavily affected by the 76% inflation is the teaching fraternity. The country boasts of 130,000 teachers countrywide, but at least 35,000 work in the rural areas. According to Amalgamated Rural Teachers Union of Zimbabwe, these are the worst affected teachers in the country, hence the job action has started in rural schools. Obed Masaraure, president of the ART UZ, told Channel Africa. From today, the 3rd of June to the 5th of June, our membership is not going to be reporting to duty. These teachers are protesting against the slave wages that we are receiving from our employer. These teachers are demanding that they get a, a living wage. So we, have, we are saying we need the United States dollar, $500, 500 US dollars, which we were earning before the current uh, uh, crisis. So if the government cannot pay us the 500 US dollars that we were earning before Mutuli came into office with these austerity measures, the best compromise is to get the interbank rate. Uh, of the of the, that particular month, you will realize that the cabinet of Zimbabwe is already approved that the salaries which were contracts that were agreed in United States dollar terms uh, should be paid in in the big rates at the moment. Salaries for teachers lost value by a huge margin last year after the July elections. Things got worse in October after the finance minister Mtulingwe announced separation of foreign currency accounts and the locals. While teachers' wages were previously pegged in U.S. dollars from 2009, that ceased to be after that announcement. With the monthly inflation now at 76%, so is the salary losing value every day. Zimbabweans are sympathetic with teachers, but one question has always been asked if at all teachers consider the plight of school children before they strike. Messi Mpata, a RTUZ Madibelo North spokesperson, explained. The government has the sole responsibility of the welfare of children and their education. As a teacher, I can only teach from a point of capacitation. I can only teach them well when my own children are looked after. It can be folly that I can teach children when my own are staying at home without school fees. Masaraore urged parents to support teachers on strike. We urge parents to join in this fight because this fight is also going to benefit their children. Uh, there's only attendance in the rural areas of 62% of teachers and that percentage is dropping as other teachers are leaving the schools, uh, going back home after, after getting the news. And we are glad that teachers from other unions are also joining. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Uchemwa. Our headlines up next with Lusa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Sudan's military cancels a power transfer agreement with protesters and calls for elections within nine months. A Nigerian inquiry into a controversial police unit recommends that 22 officers should be prosecuted and a shootout between suspected Al-Shabaab militants and Kenyan security forces near the northeast town of Mendera reportedly leaves two people dead. Those are the stories making headlines.
Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. The application for a permanent stay of prosecution by former apartheid police officer João Rodriguez has been dismissed by the High Court in Johannesburg. Rodriguez is accused of the murder of South African anti-apartheid activist Ahmed Timol in 1971. Rodriguez faces a murder charge after an inquest found Timol was thrown to his death from the 10th floor of Johannesburg Central Police Station. Session Naidu reports. Almost 50 years after anti-apartheid activist Ahmed Timol's death, former police officer Yao Rodriguez will go on trial. This comes after the Johannesburg High Court dismissed his application for a permanent stay of prosecution. 80-year-old Rodriguez has argued that the prosecution will violate his right to dignity as he would be tried at his old age for a crime allegedly committed 48 years ago. Judge Sian Moshidi handed down the judgment earlier today. The refusal of a permanent stay of prosecution is not signaling that we are required to be vengeful to those who are alleged to have committed serious crimes in the past, but rather an affirmation that the principles of accountability and responsibility for the breaching of the rules of society stand at the doorway of our new constitutional order. In terms of the judgment, the following order is made. The application is dismissed. Two, no order is made as to costs. I hand down the judgment. The Timol family are elated by the judgment. Timol's nephew, Imdiaz Keiji, says Rodriguez needs to be held accountable for his actions. Totally excited, uh, truly humbled that we had always known that the truth would be on our side. Today's judgment is not just a victory for Ahmed Timol, but for all the other activists who have died in police detention. In 25 years since the birth of democracy, there's been absolutely no progress on their investigations. And there's a clear message that the full bench has sent today. Apartheid perpetrators can no longer use the excuse of the time delay, or like Rodriguez did, talking about his age, and that will simply not hold. So obviously we need to study the judgment much more closely, but I think the message was very clear that the criminal case against George Rodriguez must commence immediately. The National Prosecuting Authority has welcomed the dismissal of Rodriguez's application. NPA Gauteng spokesperson Pindi Njonondwane says the judgment affirms the rule of law. The ruling affirms the rule of law. It is in the interest of justice, as the court ruled, that those who are alleged to have perpetrated violent crimes should be held accountable, should be brought to court. We don't want to preempt what will happen as the NPA because the word that we had currently from the lawyers that were representing him is that they want to study the judgment and then they'll inform us whether they wish to appeal or not. Obviously, if they appeal, then we cannot go to trial. We need to first exhaust that process and then we can be able to set the trial date. The Foundation for Human Rights has called on the National Director of Public Prosecutions to prosecute those who are alleged to have committed serious crimes during the apartheid years. Human rights lawyer and former TRC Commissioner Yasmin Suka says she hopes that this judgment serves as a warning for perpetrators. The message to the perpetrators really from our side is that this judgment is a message to you. Come forward 
and make full disclosure. Because if you don't, we're going to be relentless in our pursuit for justice and accountability. And the, the message is to the NDPP as well. Do your job without fear or favor, because at the end of the day, this matter is a signal to you and to all of the other cases that we're coming after the perpetrators. The criminal case against Rodriguez will continue on the 28th of June. Sasha Naidu is Johannesburg. This month, South African low-cost airline Mango introduced flights from Lanseria Airport, Johannesburg, direct to Zanzibar. This new route will allow for passengers from Durban and Cape Town to connect and make the trip to the island of Zanzibar on the same day. Previously, flights from Oatambo International Airport departed too early for connecting passengers. Janine Lee filed this report. is just minutes away from taking to the sky. SAA's low-cost airline, Mango Airlines, is the only carrier to fly directly to the island. Now added flights from Lanseria have made the trip more user-friendly. Flight Captain Francois Stein explains what the route is like to Zanzibar. So it's going to be a nice visual approach in there, quite a nice scenic arrival for the passengers sitting on the right and the left-hand side, firstly starting over at Dar. And for landing on an island, is there anything you guys have to take into consideration? Oh, uh, at, well, uh, at the end of every flight there's a runway, so nothing, nothing more. It's at sea level, so the aircraft's performance is also fantastic. Zanzibar has a population of around one and a half million people, and their economy is based on tourism and international trade. The meetings, incentives, conferences and event sector in Africa has grown by 40%, and Zanzibar is one of the players in this sector. The direct flights are a result of bilateral talks with respective governments, as Mango Marketing Director Benediction Zubane explains. South Africa has been very strong in fostering relationships uh, with the Tanzanian government, and as a result of that, uh, South Africa was able to obtain a license to fly out of uh, South Africa, Johannesburg, to Zanzibar directly. And this is the first in the sub-Saharan region, And that that shows that uh, we cemented our relationship. While it's a win for the passengers, for the air crew, it's just another day on the job. Air hostess Sophie Degana shares her thoughts. The only sad thing about it is us as crew, we just only drop them off. And they're like, ah, bye, bye, bye. Only thing is like, oh, okay, enjoy your holiday. We don't get to get off or anything like that. We just say bye. Linda Shabalala, who works on the same flight, shares her sentiments. Zanzibar flights are very interesting because everyone is just bubbly, everyone is just happy, chill passengers, relaxed, and they're just going on holiday, so so it's wonderful. So it's very, very nice. It's beautiful. Zanzibar is located off the coast of Tanzania. The island is popular and globally known as a top beach holiday destination, with its azure waters and miles of soft sandy beaches. Tourism contributes more than 80% of Zanzibar's foreign exchange and constitutes 27% of its GDP. The island also has a rich history. Its capital, Stone Town, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Janine Lee, Zanzibar.
Tanzania has become the latest African nation to effect a ban on plastic bags. The Plastic Carrier Bags Regulations 2019 that prevent import, export, manufacturing, sale, storage, supply and the use of plastic carrier bags regardless of their thickness has taken effect in Tanzania mainland. Environmentalists have welcomed the ban. For more on this, Ntlandlamatlangu spoke to Simon Lugandu, Conservation Manager at the Worldwide Fund for Nature in Tanzania. This decision is uh, actually uh, very good uh, because uh, we see uh, the impacts of uh, uh, plastic bags uh, it makes to the environment. Uh, For example, we know millions of tons of plastics is polluting the ecosystems and this uh, has impact on the on the nature, livelihoods, the human health, uh, wildlife, and many other components that are being affected by these millions of tons of plastics. What do you say to those who say this might affect job losses in the country as there were people who were employed in the plastic sector who stand to lose their jobs now because of this ban? No, I don't think there will be loss of jobs because the uh, uh, alternatives to the plastics will also create jobs. So uh, it's, it's not completely that uh, jobs will be lost, and instead I think uh, jobs will be created by the use of uh, alternative materials. And the government has further said that those who will be still using the prohibited material will be liable for a fine or will be sued. Do you think this is the right way to ensure that, you know, this ban is enforced? Fines are there, but I know the government has put a very good process on how to enforce the law that it has been put. One is about prohibiting... Uh, people from the use of the of the plastics and uh, as someone continues to use the plastics uh, and uh, he is uh, caught it means the severeness of the punishment uh, will be increasing as someone is caught so i can say the process that the government has put for me is uh, properly done Uh, because it is incremental in terms of first ensuring people are aware, ensuring that uh, these are the alternative uh, options instead of using the plastic bags. And also there are um, actions that are being undertaken to actually collect all the plastics that are in the market so that they can be disposed of. So for me, I think the whole uh, entire process for managing the ban of plastics is uh, quite good. That was Simon Lugandu, Conservation Manager at Worldwide Fund for Nature in Tanzania, on the line speaking to Tlantlamatlang. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika amka na unai Amanda Machaka up next with our economics update. Good morning. Zimbabwe may start producing its own diesel and petrol within the next 10 years. This following encouraging exploration findings by Australian company Invictus Energy in their Muzarabani area. The discovery of oil, which appears highly likely as evidenced by the results of extensive evaluation of existing and new data using latest technology, will be a major breakthrough for a resource-dependent economy facing acute fuel shortage amid crunch foreign currency shortages. Mines and Mining Development Minister Winston Chitando told a Chamber of Mines conference in Victoria Falls last week that Zimbabwe was headed in the right direction regarding exploration for petroleum oil. African countries that produce oil frequently run financial surplus on their national budgets while those that import have to pay substantial amounts for oil imports. The cotton company of Zimbabwe, Kotko, will invest more in tillage machinery as it moves towards enhancing yields. That's according to Managing Director Payas Manamike. Conservationist uh, tillage is one of the viable options meant to mitigate the effects of climate change, which in the recent years has been causing prolonged dry spells. Codco started offering tillage services to its farmers last year, and those whose land was tilled by the tractors achieved better yields even though the rains were erratic. The International Monetary Fund has urged South Africa to urgently implement reforms to lift business confidence. The IMF also wants government to act decisively on tackling structural impediments to growth. The financial body says President Cyril Ramaphosa's election has brought a sense of cautious optimism about economic prospects. The IMF's representatives have been in South Africa for the past week to discuss recent economic developments. Tepo Mungwai reports. The IMF mission led by Anna Lucia Cornell has warned that the fiscal deficit could worsen as weak economic growth constrained revenue. It says that additional support for state-owned enterprises could also put pressure on the fiscals. It added that ESCOM will require bold action to alter its business model so that it becomes self-sustained and ensures affordable and reliable electricity supply. It has cautioned against government's ongoing funding of ESCOM, saying the move will not resolve the company's issues. 
Meanwhile, South Africa's ruling ANC says the trade war between China and the United States will have painful ripples in the South African economy. U.S. President Donald Trump is currently in the U.K., while President Xi Jinping of China is expected to visit Russia before the end of the week. The ANC's chair for peace and security, Tony Yengeni, says the party is concerned about the trade of destruction that will be left behind by the persisting tensions between the two big economies. Anything that happens between them of a negative nature affects us. It doesn't only affect them, it affects us. It affects our currency, it affects our trade, our exports and imports. It affects our growth strategy. So we are concerned. We hope that the United States of America and China will find themselves in a negotiated um, environment where whatever differences they have, they can resolve through negotiations. In the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 359.29 Nigerian Naira, 10.72 Botswana Pula, 99.88 Kenyan Shilling, and 13.11 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.90 Brazilian Hayao, 65.36 Russian Ruble, 69.17 Indian Rupee, 6.92 Chinese Yuan, South African rand. The dollar is trading at 79 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,322, platinum at $813 per ounce, while the price of print crude oil is $61.07 a barrel. That's the latest business news. Our sports updates up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we begin with football news. Football Wales governing body FIFA has lifted Sierra Leone's international ban after a high-level meeting that was held by the association in Paris on Monday. In a statement, FIFA said the suspension was lifted after the High Court of Sierra Leone acquitted the SLFA President Isha Johansson and General Secretary Chris Kamara of all charges on the 27th of May. High Court Judge Justice Reginald Finn in his verdict said there is no evidence which should support the charges of the prosecution of the Anti-Corruption Commission. The officials were therefore found not guilty. Public Relations Officer of Sierra Leone's Football Association, Ibrahim Kamara, says the move is good news for the country's football. In October 2018, FIFA suspended Sierra Leone from all international competitions with immediate effect as a result of government interference into activities of the country's football association. And South African national football team, Bafana Bafana coach Stuart Baxter, is confident that the national team will make the nation proud at the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations in Egypt. Well, I hope I'm not responsible for the happiness of the country. That's a little bit, that's a little bit out of my grasp, but... Uh... I certainly hope that we can we can do something in in Afcon that will make people believe that our football is moving in the right direction, and and I hope that that will make them happy. Now, for me, the pressure is there all the time. You know, it's not just there because someone says, you know, you have to make the nation happy, or you know, there are eyes watching you. That that's 
That's my, I live with that all my life. I'm a professional. The players, they've got to perform and they have to make a friend of the fact that maybe we, maybe we won't be perfect today. Maybe I'll have, to, I'll have to dig this game out. Maybe I've got to do things that I've never done before. But for me, that's a challenge. That's not a problem. So I'll be asking the players to meet that challenge. All the players reported to Kembe except for injured Kigen Doli, who was withdrawn ahead of Bafana's Kosafa Cup quarterfinal match against Botswana. Dutch base striker Lars Velvig arrived in the morning and set out the training session. Baxter says Doli will be going for a scan. Uh, it's a groin. It's serious, it's serious enough for us to be concerned. It's, uh, it's a groin that he, he tweaked it a little bit before he came. But they managed it and he trained and he did okay. And then he came down and uh, in the first training he felt it. And so it hasn't got better and that's a concern. What we don't want is to land in uh, Egypt and suddenly it's getting a lot worse and we're missing a player. So we're going to deal with it now and then we'll make a, a call if, he's, uh, if we can manage it or not. Well, I don't know until we get the, the scan. He's getting a scan now. He's at, the, he's at the hospital getting a scan and when the doctor gives me his uh, opinion then I'll, I'll be able to make a call on that. In cricket news, Virat Kohli's India will unleash their formidable pace attack against beleaguered South Africa when the title contenders open their Cricket World Cup campaign tomorrow. India are the last of the 10 teams to launch their challenge in England and Wales and they start against a protest team already in turmoil after losing their first two matches. The two-time world champions plan to push South Africa towards elimination in Southampton by deploying a feared bowling lineup led by Jasprit Bumrah, the top-ranked one-day international bowler in the world. Bumrah is ably supported by fellow quicks Mohamed Shami, Bhuvneshwar Kumar and Hadik Pandya. And finally, South Africa's star Olympian Kasta Semenya is likely to be able to compete for around a month at international 800-meter races. This is until the result of a Swiss appeal against the Court of Arbitration ruling on the IAAF's testosterone levels decision for female athletes is made known. Janet Whitten has the details. Semenya lost her appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and the IAAF implemented the rules limiting the testosterone levels of women running between 4 and 1,500 meters within a week. After consultation and with the support of the South African government and Athletic South Africa, she announced last week that she will appeal that decision to the Swiss Federal Tribunal. That higher court has now suspended the implementation of the controversial rules pending the appeal. Lawyer Greg Knott says that's likely to be at the earliest by the end of June. In the meantime, Semenya, Francine Neonsoba and others affected can continue to compete. That's a Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine of the Sawa, UN condemns violent crackdown on protesters in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, and US President Donald Trump begins his controversial state visit to the UK. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutara Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. I'll take us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.z a is Manu World Star with a song titled Nalingi. So divine, African dime, melanin in those dyes. These are the doors, don't make it easy to talk to you. So I hold my peace, maybe one day you'll see. Nalingio, mama, mama. Nalingio, mama, mama. Nalingio, mama, mama. My heart go boom boom for you The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you take care of you I swear I lost my focus when you stepped in the room You're all blissful beauty from your head to your shoes Shoes Big body like one dumb Look so good and I want some Them boys highlight you up one Hala sunrise to the sundown Yeah, 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 yeah Mudimu made you with blessings A man employee give your work to me Come and wine for me Nalingio, mama, mama Nalingio, mama, mama Nalingio, mama, mama Nalingio, mama, mama Nalingio
in the headlines.